Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, June 27th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hello. Stephanie Armour of the Wall Street Journal. Hi, good morning. And Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Thanks for having me. Later, we'll have our latest Bill of the Month interview with John Hamilton of NPR. It's about some mysteriously expensive monitoring for back surgery. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. Okay, there is literally so much news this week. I don't think we are going to get to it all, but let's start with the first Democratic debate. Obviously, we're taping this at the halfway point, but did we learn anything from the first batch of candidates that we didn't already know about what they think about health care, Anna? I'm not sure we didn't know anything, but I think we saw them sort of harden their stances a little bit. We got an understanding of what Elizabeth Warren is willing to stand up for, um, obviously. She she did raise her hand yeah. when the moderator asked, <laughs> exactly. are you willing to get or do you want to get rid of all private insurance? Right. And, you know, I think that was the obvious first question on health care. And she came prepared and just straight up said, yes, I would do that. Insurance companies are, you know, made to make money and raise your premiums. And I think we should get rid of that. Them, which, um, you know, I, I don't know that we've heard her come out quite that strongly in that sense. Um, there's been a lot of people taking the middle ground, which we did hear from a good number of candidates, including Amy Klobuchar, who want more of a, a slow transition, um, if at all, to, to ever get rid of employer-sponsored insurance. And so, I mean, that's what I took away from last night. Stephanie? Uh, what I was most struck by really was Elizabeth. Uh, Warren's raising her hand in that moment because you can understand to some extent why she needs to do it because she needs to get some of the Bernie Sanders voters. But this could really come back to haunt her later yeah, on. She, she just, said, I'm with Bernie. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And you could just see the attack ads should she be the nominee um, based on her strong stance of getting rid of private insurance. And ultimately, this is a go- the goal I think that most of the Democrats' candidates favor is moving to a Medicare for all system. But with a, they're much more nuanced in, in terms of the process of getting there. But she was right out of the bat. And that I, I think could be a difficult position for her down the line. Rebecca? I, I agree. I think that Democrats have learned over the years, starting with Hillary Clinton back in the 1990s, that when you get really specific and you try to take people's health insurance away or change it in a dramatic way, that that's a political risk. I thought it was interesting that only two of the candidates, Elizabeth Warren and Bill de Blasio, raised their hands last night. And I think that um, going forward, you'll probably see Bernie Sanders really come out and advocate strongly. But strongly, but Vice President Joe Biden, for example, has been much more cautious. And he said, you know, we want to do a, a public option. And if you're in a state that would where you would qualify for Medicaid, but your state didn't expand Medicaid, then you wouldn't have to have these out-of-pocket costs. But I think that 
you know, people like Joe Biden and Amy Klobuchar are thinking ahead to the general election, and they're not going to go out on the limb that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders went down. One I also of, think uh, one of the things that I really took away from this when you step back is how much of the focus during the debates on the health care questions specifically were about the access issue and what do you support where what you're really hearing from President Trump is much more about high health care costs. And I think it's going to be important in some ways for Democrats to try and tie um, their access proposals to some of those cost issues more. Well, they did mention drug costs a number of times, but it was Mm -hmm. always sort of in passing. Yep. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that they still maybe need to crystallize those ideas that for Democrats, because, you know, yesterday there was this, um, which I, I know we'll talk about later, markup in the Senate Health Committee. Um, of some of the bills to lower health care costs, specifically after surprise billing. What I read is Sanders and Warren weren't there, but they opposed it. So, Correct. you know, there needs to be some some crystallization of, OK, well, what would you support if it wasn't going to be Medicare for all or that's not going to happen right away? How do you bring down costs right now? I was actually surprised that nobody asked Elizabeth Warren that at the debate. It's like, so there, there's a bipartisan bill that's going through the Senate and you weren't there, but you had a no vote on that bill. <laughs> right. She said it was because she really wanted to address bigger issues. She talked right. about the sabotage of the Trump administration and so forth. And Bernie Sanders said that he voted against it because they didn't provide enough funding for things like community health centers Correct. and the National Health Service Corps. But, you know, it is interesting because affordability is the big issue. You're right. In the Kaiser Family Foundation poll, twice as many people last week in the poll that came out um, said that they wanted to hear about affordability rather than insurance expansion in these debates. One of the things that surprised me about the debate is that they seem to be less cautious talking about abortion than they did talking about health insurance, which is like, whoa, I don't think I remember ever seeing that before. They seem to all come out and say, we're totally for, you know, a complete woman's right to choose, including, you know, having the government help pay for it. I mean, the 10, at least that were on the stage last night, seemed much more unanimous on that than they did about what to do about the healthcare system writ large. I think it's about mobilizing women. I Mm -hmm. think that there is so much going on in these states Alabama, Ohio, Louisiana, all these states that are curbing people's access to abortion. And it's really a political risk, especially for suburban women in both parties. And so I think that Democrats are tapping into that. Well, let's talk about health care costs. The other big news of the week is the price transparency executive order signed by President Trump on Monday. The president called this, and I quote, bigger than health care itself. Stephanie, you've been all over this story since before it happened. What would it do? And is it that big a deal? Uh, Well, the devil is in the details, as the cliche goes, and it really is in this case. Um, There are some industry people who were like, you know, really breathed a sigh of relief. They feel like that because it didn't specifically say that hospitals will have to expose their negotiated rates. It said information about which, you know, you don't know whether that's going to be basically averages or specific to the hospital. You know, they were saying, look, this is all about political campaigning and kind of breathed a sigh of relief. But I talked to other individuals who were like, this is purposely written large and that's what should concern industry. So what does it actually say? It's an executive order and it orders HHS to do regulation. The the federal agencies to pursue a number of actions, including a rule within two months on having hospitals disclose uh, information about the negotiated rates that they get with insurers. It propels forward um, a plan in terms of providers, which broader than hospitals, to give consumers information about their out-of-pocket costs 
upfront before they undergo a treatment. It does a number of other things too, including expanding um, what HSAs can be used for. It directs agencies to pursue that. It directs agencies to health make, savings accounts. Yeah, the, the, health the, savings accounts. The tax right. preferred vehicles that Thank you can you. use. Yeah, too. and it, it directs uh, some work in terms of uh, claims data being more accessible. Uh, and mapping out a way to sort of consolidate health quality information. I mean, the general idea, the dream here is to consumers basically shop for healthcare like an Uber, like what's the price, what's the quality. But there were a number of things that could have been in the order that were not, including um, directing the Department of Labor to use ERISA statute to compel insurers to disclose rates that wasn't in there. Uh, so, you know, it depends on how strong that rule is. The other interesting point is a number of industry officials uh, are suspicious that the timing on the rule, which is two months, that their rule is already written. I'm hearing a lot of questions about that, like how much input is this really going to be from the from the stakeholders on this one with such a tight turnaround time? So the president's been saying for weeks now, we've been sort of joking about it, that, you know, you're, we're going to have this big health plan in about two weeks. He's oh, been that's saying a different that. thing. <laughs> well, that, no, but this, this is my question. Is, is weeks, that right? different from yes. or is was this it? It's supposed to be different. That's supposed to be different. Yes. Okay. So so the idea here, and I think that was the president who was explaining it this way, is that, you know, you go, you get health care, you give them your insurance, you still have no idea how much it costs. And then weeks later, you get, you know, the explanation of benefits from your insurance company that says, here's how much the provider charge, here's how much we're going to pay, and here's how much you owe. The, the idea is that you could get that information in advance before you get the care. Is that really going to happen with this? Well, you could argue that a lot of insurers already provide that information. Uh, I think what the proponents of this really want to see is the negotiated rate information specific to hospitals. And anything that falls short of that um, is not going to meet their goal. I also think that you now have HHS Secretary Alex Azar tasked with putting this together. And his question is going to be how how much do we really want to upend industry with this? And it's possible that there could be some kind of uh, rule that does compel providers to provide an estimate. They even mentioned the word estimate. Again, that is pretty nonspecific. It's really going to ha- come down to what is in there. I mean, that's really what we're going to have to digest, what comes out. So it's been kind of an article of faith among Republicans for decades that if you make medical prices more transparent, more available to the public, that people will be able to shop mm-hmm. and that they'll be able to compare prices and that will bring prices down. But uh, there is a suggestion that it is just as likely to raise prices as to lower them. Our colleague Margot Sanger-Katz isn't at the table this week, but I wanted to mention her very excellent story in the New York Times about a study of, I kid you not, Danish concrete manufacturers. It seems when Denmark required prices to be made public, they went up rather than down because those who were charging less felt free to raise their prices to the one who was charging the most. Um, could we see the same thing happen with healthcare? Could this work exactly backwards from what's intended? Well, you see some states have already done this. And uh, New Hampshire, for example, uh, Melanie Evans uh, had a story out on this uh, yesterday that found that it really didn't make that much of a difference. That being said, I will say that this has really touched on a pain point for people. People are like, wait a minute, how come I go to the doctor and I have no idea how much this is going to cost me until a month later when I get it? I mean, we've all felt that. We've all been like, gosh, what's the bill going to be? If you look at how that may potentially play into the campaign, that could be potentially powerful. The candidates and President Trump, I might point out, seem to be honing in on what the polls say, which is that people are more interested about how much they are paying individually than how much the system costs writ large. Mm -hmm. 
capacity. I think that's certainly true, especially as more people are in these high deductible plans, which the administration <coughs> wants to encourage. And I think that there are, there were little things within the executive order, smaller things that maybe they could point to as helping consumers. You know, you might be able to carry over more money in your flexible spending account if Treasury comes out with a rule that they're calling for. There also were little things that I thought might be for specific companies. Um, there were things talking about how if claims data is more available, researchers can use that, but also entrepreneurs can use oh, that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and the, yeah, the no executive order. I see that happening. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it specifically said, you know, we hope entrepreneurs will create new tools to help people. So it was it was interesting. Um, I do think that affordability is a, a major issue and that both the Trump administration and candidates on the trail really have to come up with an answer to that question. All right. From the nerdy but important file, the Supreme Court this week agreed to hear a case brought by insurance companies who say they are still owed money under the Affordable Care Act through something called risk corridors. Uh, that was one of the ways the law was supposed to protect insurers whose enrollees included sicker than average people. But Republicans in Congress blocked most of the funding. That left a lot of insurance companies owed a lot. And by a lot, I mean billions of dollars. I think the number is $12 wow. billion. Uh, Lower courts ruled that Congress had the right to change the rules. But now that's up in the air again because the Supreme Court's taking the case. Uh, Basically, this case is about whether private businesses can trust the federal government to be a reliable business partner, right? Mm -hmm. Rebecca, you're nodding. Absolutely. That's it. I mean, these companies, these co-ops that were created in the 2010 healthcare law, they were counting on this money. They ended up getting like 12.6% or something like that. And so there are questions there about... And a lot of them went out of business because yes, of that. Yes, exactly. Very, uh, a huge amount. And so um, I, I think that you're right that there is this question of, you know, once there's a law in place, can companies count on that? And can Congress come back and put in a little bit of a, a, a sentence or two in a larger bill and change the terms of that agreement? The power of these small little riders to completely change the business climate for companies is something that's of concern. And so it'll be really interesting once the Supreme Court takes this up next term to see what happens. And interestingly enough, this could potentially, depending on how the Supreme Court rules, lead to some rebates for Mm -hmm. some companies. And because of the, quote, medical loss ratio, which is how much can be put towards profits, conceivably some consumers could be getting significant amounts back if the court sides with the plaintiff. It's so confusing. I don't remember where I read this. I think but it, it was, was a, there were a number of legal and, and health analysts on Twitter who were saying this that it could be an enormous mess because as Rebecca points out, some of these companies have gone out of business and in any case these are this is mostly I think years twenty fourteen through twenty sixteen. Right. So by the time we get a Supreme Court decision on this, which will be twenty twenty most of the people who were in those plans in 2014 through 2016 aren't going to be in them anymore. But they could get a $10,000 check. Well, no, I think the people who are in the plans now could get a $10,000 check. That's true. You're right. You're That's right. what's so yeah. confusing. Yeah. If someone was suggesting, well, maybe we should go sign up for one of the right plans that might get get money back because then we could get the rebate. I mean, even if they're owed this money, the idea of this money actually finding its rightful home is fairly doubtful. The more you think about it, the more it kind of makes your hair curl. Um, but that is that is something that we will watch going forward. Um, so meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, Anna, you mentioned this earlier, a key Senate committee approved what's turning into quite a big health mm-hmm. cost bill. Um, who wants to tell us what's in this gigantic bill from the Health, <laughs> Education, Labor and Pensions Committee? 
and well, you start. <laughs> I think the the focus uh, there are a lot of things in this bill. The focus has been on the surprise billing um, piece of it, which um, you know Senator Alexander is the chairman of this committee. He came down on the side of you know setting a benchmark for out of network care, and that will that benchmark will be tied to you know local rates essentially. Um, and you know that that is something that the insurance companies much prefer um, to the hospitals and doctors who were not happy um, when that happened and when this passed the help committee yesterday. But the idea is, um, you know, to to basically not be able to send surprise bills to patients any longer, and patients will pay their their in network rate and the uh, insurance companies will will pay the providers sort of this benchmark rate um, so that we cut down on these enormous bills which Kaiser Health News has been covering um, and then there are some there are a lot of other things in this legislation as well one is um, there was a uh, Mitch McConnell's um, pet project recently is to raise the age for people to buy tobacco to 21 instead of 18. Um, there's a lot of controversy around this piece. It sounds simple, but people think that this is a way for because um, it wouldn't just be cigarettes. It would be e-cigarettes. It's a way for them to try to avoid some other regulation that could be coming down the line. Um, yes, yeah, since we've talked a lot about the, the problem of teens and vaping. Right. And and so, you know, there's other restrictions that could be coming and the vape companies could point to this and say, well, look, now we're it's 21, so you don't have to worry about all that other mm-hmm. stuff. Um, there's also some drug pricing measures in there. One is uh, the CREATES Act, which has been hanging around for a very long time. It was added, um, as was the McConnell Amendment, um, and sort of later in the process. But um, what that would do is help generics come to market more easily. Essentially, they need to test these drugs to get them to market, and they need to test them against the brand that they're copying. And the brand companies um, do this thing where they sometimes just don't give them any samples, and they won't provide them with them, so they can't test them. That would And in some places, they can't even buy them. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so that would stop, stop that. And then... Um, there, there was there's some other stuff in there on um, something that pharmacy benefit managers do called spread pricing, which is um, you know put some limits on that. So there's a lot of little provisions in there as well. So oh, oh, it's ahead. interesting how they're lining up with the House on this, and mm-hmm. I think that there is a pretty good chance that this could become law this year as part of maybe a, a larger bill. So um, the Senate it, wants to vote in July. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Mitch okay. McConnell told my colleague that. Um, that it's up early. It's a high priority, maybe because of the tobacco provision. Right. And um, and there is going to be some work that's going to be done. Um, Lamar Alexander, the chairman, said he wanted it to be on the floor on the third or fourth week of July. But they did say during the markup that they were going to continue to work on that surprise billing provision, which was kind of interesting because Bill Cassidy, who is also a doctor, he's a senator, a Republican senator. And from a member Louisiana. of the committee. Yes, yes. He said, Look, I'm really surprised the Democrats went along with this provision because it's really giving insurance companies all the power and the doctors and hospitals are could be in trouble, especially in rural areas. And so there was this kind of exchange between the chairman and 
and uh, Bill Cassidy saying, we're going to continue to work on this because Cassidy wants some sort of independent dispute resolution to be sort of a backstop in case there is continued disputes between the providers and the insurance companies over this. I think the doctors and the hospitals are worried that if it's set at the the in-network rate, even if it's the the average in-network rate, that they're going to have to not just take a pay cut, but there will be no way for them to sort of get either what they're getting now or even Mm -hmm. getting raises. I mean, they're concerned that Mm -hmm. it will depress prices, which is the idea. But, Mm -hmm. But still, that makes the people who are getting more money now very unhappy. And it was, it's interesting. I was talking to someone at one of these companies that um, provides the doctors and ho- to the hospitals, um, you know, to work in the ER rooms and things like that, you know. That, so they're not on staff there, but they're providing them to work there. So they end up being the doctors. They give out a lot of these surprise bills. And they were saying, this is the insurance company's fault. I mean, of course, they said that. But they were saying they can't get negotiations with them done to be in network. I don't know the negotiations that are going on, but I, I thought that was an interesting point because that I asked then, well, okay, so if that's not the patient's fault, why are they still getting this extremely large bill that's more than you charge anyone else? And they said, well, you know, that's part of just the old system and we haven't changed it. So <laughs> they could have they could have worked on ways to head this off a long time ago and they didn't. And it's worth mentioning, again, we mentioned this at the top, that everybody on the committee voted for this bill except for Elizabeth Warren Warren and Bernie Bernie Sanders. Sanders. And Rand Paul. Oh, and Rand Paul. That's right. (laughs) Yes. I won't say votes against everything, but yeah. (laughs) And I heard him. He was there. I mean. um, Yes, he was. (laughs) So Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders think it doesn't do enough, and Rand Paul thinks basically it does. I won't say too much, but the wrong things. Is Mm -hmm. Is that a fair way to put it? He's not very shy. (laughs) No. Yes, he makes his points very clear. Um, Okay. Finally, this week, uh, or last week, actually, an appeals court on the West Coast canceled a nationwide injunction, a couple of injunctions, in fact, and let controversial new rules governing the federal family planning program take effect. These are the rules that forbid health professionals from making abortion referrals and that require physical separation between facilities that provide contraception and those that provide abortion. It's squarely aimed at Planned Parenthood. Um, What happens now? I think Planned Parenthood has said that they're going to stop participating in the federal family planning program. They also plan to appeal. I think that was the, I mean, this isn't the end of it for sure. Um, And so I think I think it keeps going for a while. But they're, I mean, they're going to ask, I guess, the full appeals court in the Ninth Circuit um, that to take this case. But in the meantime, I, I, I think people were surprised because a number of different organizations sued in a number of different places and there were overlapping federal injunctions. And now they said, nope, OK, this can all happen. I think except in Maryland. I think Maryland had its own injunction. So that, so Maryland is the only state where this is still blocked. But it, it could be a, a big, in terms of the Trump administration's pursuit of regulations sort of restricting women's access to women's health services. I think this is the first big one that's actually going into effect. That's right. I mean, I, off the top May, of my right? May is the when the so. first part of it goes into effect in terms of the referrals. Yeah. Yeah. I was I was just thinking off the top of my head about what else has been blocked and we've had, you know, the conscience rules on birth control have been blocked. Um, we've had all these different there have been a ton of different things that the Trump administration has put forward. And it's interesting because, you know, with Vice President Mike Pence, this is a big issue. He's continually trying to not only restrict abortion, but restrict access to birth control and give people more access to 
to or employers more ability to say no. Um, there have been other things um, in terms of not allowing um, a foster care agency in South Carolina to say that it will not accept certain parents, parents who are lesbian or bisexual or gay, um, adopt children. There have been just a number of things. And so I think that in the elections, we're going to see this play out, especially in sort of um, the more moderate states where where there are some social conservatives who are concerned about these issues. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Now we will play our Bill of the Month interview with John Hamilton, and then we'll be back with our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast John Hamilton of NPR, my friend and former colleague who wrote the current Bill of the Month. John, thanks for coming in. My pleasure. So this month's patient had what seems to be successful back surgery, yay, and it was mostly covered by her insurance, also yay, except for one small part. So first, tell us who she is and what kind of medical intervention she had. Well, this is a woman named Liv Cannon. She lives in Austin, and she's since birth has had a, a very rare spinal condition. And it, it uh, has a couple of different elements, but part of it is the spinal cord is actually split in two. But anyway, as, as a result of that, her spinal cord has stretched out, which is causing her muscle weakness and muscle pain her entire life. And so she finally found, got a diagnosis at age 24 and realized there was something she could do. So she went and had surgery. And the surgery worked, yes? The surgery worked. She says within a few days after having it, she could tell the pain wasn't there anymore. I mean, you know, she's still recovering from this, but she's doing much, much better. And it was largely covered by her insurance, except for one thing, yes? Right. She was really careful. She made sure that the hospital and the surgeon and even the anesthesiologist were all in network for her insurance. However, it turned out she found out a year after the surgery, just about, that there had been somebody else in the in the operating room. And uh, this was a, probably a technician. They provide a service called neuromonitoring, which is something you use, you use electrical signals to monitor the state of nerves, especially the spinal cord, so you don't damage it while you're doing this kind of tricky surgery. So basically, the doctor could, could then be told, like, if you go too much into that area, you're going to have a problem. Exactly right. How much did this neuromonitoring cost? <laughs> What happened was that uh, Liv got a an explanation of benefits from uh, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, which was her insurer at the time. And what it said was that this company had billed them uh, about $94,000 for, for this and that uh, they were going to cover their, – their usual coverage was about $800 and that, that's what they were going to pay for this out-of-network service. So a 93200 gap. Yeah, and, and even a little more because uh, there was a $750 deductible. And who actually does the neuromonitoring? I mean, it's not it's not either the surgeon or the anesthesiologist, right? It could be, but generally not when you're especially if you're seeing this kind of charge for it. Usually there are companies that provide this service for hospitals and it happens in spinal surgery, sometimes brain surgery. And usually it works like this. You have a technician, somebody who's trained to set up all of the monitoring arrangement in the operating room. And they are keeping track of the signals and looking for any signal change that might mean the spine is being hurt or a nerve is being hurt. But also they are sending that signal to a doctor, usually at a remote location, 
who is also monitoring it and has the responsibility for stepping in if there's anything that goes wrong. And the idea is that these two people communicate with the surgeon during the operation to make sure everything goes right. So why didn't her insurance want to pay for this? Their uh, stand was that it was way beyond their usual payment for this service. Which, and as you said, is what, like $800? $800 is what they agreed to pay. Now, if they had a contract with this company, I don't know. Maybe their contracted amount might be more. But this is what they seemed to be willing to pay for an out-of-network provider. And their point is, this was not somebody who's part of our network. And so you're getting the out-of-network rules instead of the in-network rules. And that means that the company can bill anything it wants. And Blue Cross only has to pay what they think is fair. Now, this is like our third bill of the month from Texas, might be our fourth. Um, And we know that Texas has a new law about this. Should she have been told uh, that this was out of network or does the new law not even apply yet? It's about to take effect. And it's a little unclear exactly how far it will cover. It was really designed to prevent these uh, out-of-network charges when somebody goes in for an, an emergency, you know, and they can't choose their hospital. But there is language in it that makes it sound like a lot of out-of-network charges might fall under. And, and the idea being that people can't be surprised by these bills anymore. In any event, this law is not going to help her. It takes effect and then things that happen after that will be affected. But it's, it's not relevant to her situation. So what is her situation with this bill now? Well, her situation is that uh, as she's uh, weeks away from getting married, she is going to the mailbox every day and wondering, am I going to get a bill? And from the people I've talked to, it sounds like she probably never will. There are some of these firms whose way of operating seems to be they submit the bill to the insurance company, and whatever the insurance company pays is great. Whatever they don't pay, they don't bother to try to collect from the patient. So she may or may not get like a $90,000 bill from this company. That is right. And she's aware of that, but she says the anxiety of not knowing whether you're about, you know, you're, you're embarking on uh, in marriage and all these things, and you don't know whether you're going to get this big bill. She says it's just been really hard to have all that uncertainty. Is there anything that patients can do to avoid these kinds of things? There, there are some things you can do to try. Now, as I, as I mentioned, like Liv, she was really good. She, you know, she checked on everything. Some of the things she might have done had she known about neuromonitoring ahead of time. She might have said, okay, if there's going to be a neuromonitoring company doing this, are they in network? And she could have called uh, her insurer and found out. And if they were not in network, she could have called the company and said, can you give me an estimate on how much this is going to cost? And then go back to Blue Cross and say, okay, if you got an outer network charge for this, is how much of that are you going to pay? So you'd have, so she'd have some idea of what her financial liability is. The final thing, and this is something that Blue Cross and Blue Shield of, of Texas told me, they, they said, if somebody gets a, one of these really crazy out of network bills and they come to us, we will try to negotiate with the provider to get at least some reduction, if not elimination, of the bill. Was she notified that they were out of network? Sort of. What she remembers is that at, you know, 435 in the morning when she's being prepped for this major surgery, she was getting all these forms. And she thinks one of them says, you know, I approve uh, neuromonitoring. And it might have said it. She says it probably did say out of network neuromonitoring. But her point is, I'm about to go in for surgery. I don't even know what this thing is. I'm sure I signed it. But is that really the right way to make me responsible for some huge amount of money? How common is neuromonitoring? It's become much more common than in the past. And the estimates now are that there are about 800,000 neuromonitoring procedures each year. So this is a lot of people potentially affected. Now, I should say not all of those are necessarily out of network. Many of those charges are probably entirely reasonable, but it's a lot of people. John Hamilton, 
Thank you very much. My pleasure. Okay, that is all the time we have for the news this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Uh, Rebecca, why don't you start this week? Sure. So I have San Francisco banned sales of e-cigarettes. Um, this is something that was on NPR. It got a lot of attention this week, earlier this week, when San Francisco took this action. And it's kind of interesting because Juul, which is the manufacturer of these little pods that are so popular with teenagers, is based in San Francisco. So pretty interesting there. It speaks to the bigger issue of vaping. You know, we're, we're here, um, we're, we're facing the 10-year anniversary of the law that gave the FBI FDA, the ability to regulate tobacco. And when they, when lawmakers wrote that law, they had no idea that vaping was really going to take off the way that it has. And we're seeing a really skyrocket 78% increase in one year among high school students recently. So it's really prevalent. Um, I think that the drive on the federal level to deal with the um, national tobacco age is, is in part um, because of this. And I think that a lot of parents, a lot of public health advocates are concerned because we'd seen so much progress in previous decades in bringing the smoking rate down, but now vaping is kind of taking its place among young people. Once again, California in the vanguard. Yes. <laughs> Stephanie. Um, mine is by uh, Jack Turbin. It's a story in stat about ghost networks of psychiatrists make money for insurance companies but hinder patients' access to care. And this is um, sort of a first-person story. Uh, from the point of view of a provider who's talking about the difficulty that patients have finding a psychiatrist because so many of the uh, in-network insurance listings by uh, carriers are incomplete or in some cases kind of there were some absurdities where there was a number for McDonald's. Um, And the point is that insurers are able to uh, attract consumers by saying they have this broad network. But in fact, when you get into it, once again, the devil's in the details. It's not really panning out for a lot of consumers. And especially the issue in the mental health industry that this can cause because people may be in an acute situation. They may be really needing to find someone and they may not have the emotional stamina to continually research when each one turns into something that is no longer uh, active in the in-network. Anna. Mine is from the New York Times by um, Pam Bellick and Reed Abelson. It's vaccine injury claims are few and far between. So given vaccines are in the news a lot, um, particularly with the measles coming back, um, I thought this was a good look at a lot of the numbers on the fact that, you know, the New York Times looked over the past uh, dozen years or so, and there have been more than 120 million vaccines against measles given. And, you know, and then there's other vaccines in this database as well. But the injuries are are very low. And this doesn't necessarily get to kind of the fringe autism debate, but this does get to what the injuries are. And and also the... Yeah, because, I mean, people do, there are people who have adverse reactions to right, vaccines. Right, exactly. And, and a lot of them... And there is even, a federal program that gives them <laughs> money if they do. And even even the people that did, you know, turn in a report to this, to this program, a large number of them were denied. So it's sort of a, a real assurance that vaccines are safe and for the vast majority of people doing the job. 
All right. Well, mine is from the Washington Post, and it's actually a rerun of a series that originally ran in 1966. It's called When Abortion Was Illegal, a 1966 Post series revealed how women got them anyway. It's by Elizabeth Stevens, who died in 2018. It is a fascinating look at how mostly middle and upper middle income women in the suburbs and in some cases in Washington, D.C., were able to get secret and usually but not always safe abortions through underground networks. There were also stories of women who died in what we would today call back alley abortions. It's basically evidence of what a lot of people are saying, that you can make abortion illegal, but you can't make abortion not happen. So that is our show for this week. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Anna Edney. At Steph Armour One. At Rebecca Adams CC. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. <laughs>